History, according to Luke 17, Part 2, spoken by Pastor Peter. Many, many years ago, about when my daughter Christina, she's 16 years old now, she, when she was in third grade, she was about eight, nine years old. Uh, it's just been, it was such an intense season of ministry, and I felt like I was kind of like ignoring her. And so I just said, you know, I'll take you out one day. We'll have a fun time together, daddy-daughter date. And uh, dads, you kind of know how you make promises to your kids, and, you know, you wait a day, and then a day leads to a week, and a week leads to a month, and a month leads to mo- many months. And I realized uh, I haven't fulfilled my promise. And so what I did was I said, I'm going to make a splash. I'm going to shock her. So she went to school one day. And I decided to go there, sort of like mid-morning, and I went to the office, and I said, uh, I need to take my daughter out of school. And one of the great things about being a parent, they don't even ask you why. They say, sure, just sign this paper. <laughs> so I just signed it, and they called my daughter, says, uh, get Christina on and come down with her stuff. She comes, and she's looking at me like, so worried, like, what happened? And I said, uh, something happened. Well, I'll tell you when we get out. I didn't want to tell her we're going to play hooky in front of the administrator. So she's all nervous, and we go out. We're walking out of the school, and she's like, what's going on, Daddy? And I said, we're going to play hooky all day. And she said to me, what's hooky? <laughs> and I told her, we're going to go have fun. We'll do whatever you want. We'll go to your rest, favorite restaurant. We'll go watch a movie, go hang out. We'll just have a great day together. And so we did that. We went to her favorite restaurant, which at that time was California Pizza Kitchen. And at Garden State Plaza, and we ate her favorite dish, which was Kung Pao pasta. If you've never tried it, you guys try it. It's really good. And so we ate that. We went to go watch a movie. We enjoyed a movie together. We kind of walked around the mall, holding each other's hands. Had a really great day. While we were having lunch, I just looked into her eyes, and I said, Hey, Christina, can I ask you a question? What can I do to be a better father? It's the perfect timing to ask her that during this date night with her. And she said, Daddy, nothing. You are the best daddy in the world. And I said, that's right, girl. That's right. You better believe it. And uh, it was the perfect timing for me to ask her that question. But that day, I have found a way into her heart. And it was electric for me. And I never forgot that day. Really didn't. And so much so that I remember, like, this Friday, I took my son out of school. It was his birthday, and we just played hooky all day and hung out. And just kind of reminding that day and how important that was for my daughter. And I hope that it would be important for uh, my son. But the way to somebody's heart is a beautiful thing. Have you ever thought about how do you find your way to God's heart? That's a real important question to ask today. Because I think for a lot of us, if I just be honest, we have a sickness And the sickness is that we believe God needs to find his way to our heart. That's sad. And really the desire that God has for you and for me as his children, as followers of Jesus, is that we would learn the path that leads to his heart. And it's a path, I believe, that if we're not willing to take, then there is no redemption in life that we can experience. The path, the way to God's heart, there's hope in life when we we can find it. This is probably one of the darkest seasons for a lot of people during Advent. In fact, I talked to a guy who's an engineer at, uh, for the George Washington Bridge. And he says this is the season where he and, the, of course, the poor authority police, they are on high alert. Because so many people during this season are contemplating suicide. And one way in how they do that is they jump off the bridge. And so they just recently, about a month ago, they installed nets. So now people can't jump off because they'll get caught by the net and they'll be be saved, thank God, because so many people were jumping off. But they said this is the season where everyone's on high alert. 
because people are more prone to take their lives during this holiday season. And it's a festive time of year, isn't it? But, you know, if we can't find our way to God's heart, then there is a season of depression. Even though we live in, in, a, in a season today during Advent where we should be happy and festive and joyful, there's no hope. There's no sense of resurrection or experience a redemptive hand of God if we've lost our way to God's heart. And I think a lot of us, we have. Because maybe perhaps we sit from a vantage point where we believe that God has to find his way to our heart, but he's already done that through Jesus Christ. And our goal as Christians, if we ever want to live this life for God successfully, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, is that we have to try to find our way to God's heart regularly. And I get it for this time of year. There are a lot of things going on. We suffer through losses. We're struggling with areas of our lives where we feel like it's kind of hopeless. And we're struggling with that reality. And this sort of this message today, I hope, as we look at this passage of Scripture, where Jesus is going to teach us through this amazing story how we can find our way to God's heart so that we can connect deeply with him and so that even in the midst of our losses that we might be going through, because some of you are going through some really big losses. I remember my father died two years ago in November. Uh, he died in November right before Thanksgiving. Christmas and Thanksgiving wasn't a fun season for me. It wasn't. It was, it was hard. Right? And I got to a point where I just said, I can't preach anymore, Kevin. I need you to take over for me. I can't do it to the new year. And so, like, it's sad when you go through losses in life. And for some of you, the losses could have been years ago, but the pain is still, still so real. And maybe through the loss, you've lost your way to God today. Maybe because of the stresses and the burdens that you've placed upon yourself in your marriage and the expectations you have for yourself, that you've lost your, your way to God. And so Jesus today is going to do something so beautiful. He's gonna, it's so basic, but he's going to teach us how we can find our way to God's heart. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke 17. We'll look at verses 11 through 19. Luke 17, verses 11 through 19. It'll be up on the screen. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had the leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, we're not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. God, a lot of us, perhaps maybe in this room, we've lost our way to your heart. We might have sort of gone on a tangent and followed other paths that doesn't lead to your heart. And so, God, thank you for this text. I pray that you would open up our eyes and our hearts so that we can listen and learn from you, God, and be convicted and empowered, Lord, to pursue you, to find that path that leads to your heart, Lord. And, God, I pray that we'll never leave it. And we'll continue to engage with you all the time, Lord. So, God, I pray that the words that come out of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts in this room, God, I pray they'll be pleasing unto you. And all of God's people said, amen. amen. All right, so here's the scenario here. These ten men with leprosy, scholars say that the nine of the ten were perhaps probably Jewish, and one was a Samaritan. That in and of itself is a pretty big deal, all right, because Samaritans in Jewish 
people did not get along very well. Samaritans were half-breeds. They were half-Jewish, half-Gentile. For Jewish people, they saw them as religious defectors, if you will. Uh, but the Samaritans, they believed that because they still had Jewish blood, that they were still God's chosen people, even more so than the Jewish people who were full-breeds. And so, of course, that caused a lot of racial tensions amongst one another. They never got along. But yet we find that these ten were communing and they were being together. They lived in community together. Last Sunday, Pastor Daniel Hill rocked a lot of us through his very powerful sermon. He talked about the narrative of racial difference, right? I don't know if you remember that. The narrative of racial difference is something that our country still has not addressed, and oftentimes a lot of nations don't address this. While we've gotten while we've gotten rid of certain things that sort of have oppressed people groups in our country, like, for example, slavery, it's been abolished, and that's great because our country has moved forward as a result of it. We still have not dealt with the, with the narrative of racial difference, right? And so that's, that's the reality. And we find that even in these biblical times, they haven't dealt with the narrative of racial difference because according to a Jewish person, the Jews were on top. Everyone else fell below that. And that's what they really struggled when they weren't the most powerful nation in the world anymore because they felt like they needed to. They wanted this upside-down thing to happen where they needed God to come through so that they can, again, be the top power in the world again because they felt that they were God's chosen people. And so what we learn in the story is a beautiful way in how we can address their narrative of racial difference. The key way in how we can sort of address the desire to sort of break the narrative of racial difference is really through our pain. These ten lepers, nine of which were Jew and one was a Samaritan, were able to live in community. Why? Was it because of their race? No, certainly not. It was because of their pain. They shared a pain together. They shared a disease together. And as a result of that, that was their commonality in which they were able to come and live in community. And I think like that's one of the why our church... Our vision is transformation, but how that happens is that what brings us together is not necessarily our strengths, but it's our pain. It's our weaknesses. And we find that that's what's happening here. These ten come to Jesus, and they see him, and rather than yelling out the word unclean, unclean, which, which is what they're supposed to do if somebody who is clean approaches them at a distance, they're supposed to yell that out because leprosy, which is also known as the Hansen's disease, was highly contagious. And whenever somebody came in close proximity to them, they had to yell out at the top of their lungs, unclean, unclean. Instead, they yelled out, Master, have pity on us. You see, more than the physical uh, sort of uh, disease that they were going through, it was hard. But the thing that was the hardest for these these ten lepers that they had to deal with was a social disorder that was so debilitating for them because they were not allowed to mingle with society because of their illness. And so they longed to re-enter into the community. They longed to connect with their families again. They longed for all the things that you and I longed for, but they couldn't because of their disease. And so when they saw Jesus, rather than saying unclean, they said master. And master literally means someone that you believe has authority to do miraculous things. And so they declared that Jesus is master. And they said, would you please have pity, or your translations might say, compassion on us. And what does Jesus say? Go show yourself to the priest. And so what do they do? They all go. Because in the biblical times, if you go see the priest, you only can re-enter into society if the priest gives you a certification and says you've been healed. And so they were excited to go. And as they were on their journey to go to the priest, to the temple, they were all healed. Only one decided to come back, and the other nine still go on their way to go see the priest at the temple. Why? Why did only one come back and the other nine? And Jesus was shocked. 
And you could almost sense the, 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 the grief, uh, the hurt in his heart when only one came back. And the one who came back wasn't the Jewish people. It was a Samaritan that came back. You can only feel the weight of his heart. And I feel like for many of us, we're kind of like that, aren't we? We're kind of in that place sometimes when we're with God and we pray for certain things. And we ask God to answer some of our prayer requests. And then after sort of our prayers have been answered, many of us, we just kind of move on. We don't do what the Samaritan did and we don't come back and give the proper praise and the things that God requires of us. We've become so conditional in how we love and approach God, right? Even though God meets our conditions many times, we still become so conditional in our love for him. And it's such a sad reality of that. We do that all the time, right? We do that all the time. So why didn't the nine come back? What was it about the nine that did not give them a desire to want to come back to Jesus. I think really the, the crux of this is this. They fell in love with the gift rather than the giver of that gift. That was the problem. That the nine fell more in love with the gift than the lover of that gift. If I can just be very honest, I think many times we're like, we're like the nine. We love God's power more than his presence. And the nine wanted just God's power but they did, not, they did not want his presence upon their lives, right? And so God becomes a conduit to sort of meeting a need that we might have in our lives. And once he meets that need, we just kind of move forward. But God meeting a need should draw us to have a greater passion and a hunger like the one leper that came back. We should have a greater desire for his presence, amen? We should. It should lead us to say, my goodness, God, you've come through. Your power is so amazing. I'm going to come back and acknowledge you in that way. But the nine didn't. They just wanted to go and do their thing. They only cared about his power. They didn't care about his presence. And we're so like that, I think. A lot of us, we get so consumed with the power of God that we forget that God wants you to focus on his presence. We love the gift more than the person or than the God who gives us the gift. And in many ways, then, we use God. That we have this sickness in some ways where we use God. Have you ever been used before? Have you ever been used? How does that make you feel? I hate being used. You know, sometimes you, got, you, 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 know, you can understand why you are. But sometimes it just catches you off guard and you're like, man, this person is using me. A few months ago, I got a, a, a Facebook message from somebody, a pastor. He's not necessarily a friend of mine. We never really hang out. He's never really contacted me ever. And he Facebook messaged me because he didn't know my email address. And he said, uh, hey, Peter, I have a, an amazing ministry opportunity for you. Oh, no, his words was tremendous ministry opportunity. He's like, can I get your email? I said, yeah, sure. And I gave him my email. And I thought, I wonder what this tremendous ministry opportunity is. I felt perhaps maybe he was going to invite me to speak somewhere or something like that. And, uh, and so anyway, I get the email and I open it up. And uh, you know what he wanted from me? He wanted me to promote his book. He said, would you consider promoting my book? Would you put it out in your social media? Um, would you also go to uh, Amazon and give it a five-star rating? Because if I can get 100 people to give it a five-star rating, they say that you'll sell a lot more books. And I was like, man, you're using me. We don't know each other. You're just kind of using me, using my sort of influence that I might have on social media. And then he also said, if there are some people in your church that would like to give the review, please let them do so as well. And so that feeling just didn't, it just didn't make me feel good because I don't like being used. But you know what? At the end, I did say yes, I would do it because he's, he's an Asian author, and I want to support as many Asian authors as I can. But it's still the feeling was there. And it reminded me, I, I think in many ways, that's like magnified even more with God. 
That a lot of us, we go to him and we want to use him. And when he gives whatever we're asking him to do, for a lot of us, we just kind of walk away. And we're not very grateful. We just go about our lives like the other nine did. And it's, and it's amazing that the nine who were supposed to sort of have grown up in the faith of God are the ones who left them. And the one who necessarily is considered a defector is the one who did come, right, who did come. And so we've lost our way to God in many ways. We've lost sort of how do we get to this way that leads to God's heart. Because for a lot of us, we love the gift more. We're more enchanted by God's power than we are his presence. We're more enchanted by his power than we are his presence. We found uh, we've lost our way to God's heart. And so what does this one leper teach us? How do we find our way to God's heart? Well, the first thing we learned here from this one leper, Samaritan, is this. The way to God's heart requires a posture of exuberant praise. A posture of exuberant praise. Verse 15. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. All right, this leper, this cured leper, Samaritan, praised God, praised Jesus with a real loud voice. It wasn't quiet. It wasn't calm. It was with a real loud voice. And that's important, that your praise must be exuberant to God. Years ago, I visited Redding, California to a a church called Bethel. Many of you know Bethel Church because we sing a lot of their songs. They have a tremendous worship ministry where they're just pumping out songs like every week, it seems like. And a lot of us, I mean, it's, it's catching Christendom by storm. We all just sing it at churches all around the world. And so I wanted to know what the big deal was, what was going on at Bethel. So I decided to fly out there and check it out. And so I went to a Friday night service about 30 minutes early, right, because I, I, I was anticipating a lot of people would be there. And it was pretty, it was like halfway full, about 30 minutes before service. And I just sat kind of like midway in, in the sanctuary. I didn't go all the way in the front. I just sat sort of like mid, the middle of the, of the sanctuary or the auditorium. And even 30 minutes before, there were a bunch of people that were just kind of standing right here in the front of the stage. And I thought, that's weird. What are they doing up there? About five minutes before the service, it was jam-packed in the front. And I thought, what's going on here? Is the pastor going to throw free gifts or something? Like, why are there so many people standing at the front of the stage? Like, it was just, I couldn't even get up there if I wanted to. It was jam-packed. And then when the service started and the music began, then I realized why they were up there exuberant praise. They, were, they had no room, but they were worshiping God with a sense of exuberant praise. And it really touched my heart for me to see that, that there are actually Christians out there that have such a passion and a hunger to want to praise God, and they come extra early so they can get to the front of the stage, and that they wouldn't care who's around them. They don't care if they can sing or not. All they want to do is give God exuberant praise. Why is praising God so important for us, which leads us to the heart of God? Because when you and I praise God, what it does is that it reestablishes our relationship with him in its proper terms. That God is our master and we are his servants. That's why praise is important. That's why we do that before before the sermon. Because you're not going to really learn about God until you can first honor him. And first recognize this position where you stand before him. Yes, you are his child whom he loves. But at the end, worship and praise, what it does is it reestablishes our relationship with God where he is our master and we are our servants. Amen? Amen. That's why praise is important. 
Because there's no other kind of an act of worship that we do, no other way in how we can reestablish our relationship with God in that way. And, and, and so worship, then, is such an important part, and it's an important step for us to find our way to the very heart of God. It reestablishes our relationship with him where he is our master and we are his servant. Yes, many of us, we want to learn about God. A lot of you want to spend time learning about him, and learning about him is important. But you can't really learn about him until you can first make him your master. You have to honor God. He has to, you have to see him as your king before you can really learn about him. And that's why the worship is always before the sermon, to prepare and sort of marinate your hearts in that way so that you can receive God's word and learn about him. But you can't learn about him until you see him as your master. And so can I encourage us as a church to come to church even early to prepare your hearts to worship God. Because there is no such thing, if you look at it and study history, there is no such thing where a servant shows up late to see its master. It just doesn't happen that way. A servant never shows up late for its master. You don't show up late for work because you know if you do, you'll probably get fired. And your boss isn't your master. All he does is sign your checks. That's all he does or she. But yet you show up on time. Here's our master who came and died for us from the cross and resurrected from the dead. Why do we persist to still come late and just kind of choose to come whenever we want when the praise time is an important aspect for you to prepare your heart and reestablish this position that God is your master and you are his servant? That's the way to God's heart. That's how you find your way to his heart because this leper, that's what he did. He came and he exuberantly praised Jesus and I want to encourage us, honestly, because the, until we can start falling in love with praise in that way, and, if, and I know some of you are not really into praise, and I, I understand that, but praising God is this way of you establishing your relationship with him on his proper terms. He is our master, and we're so grateful to have a master like him. And we have to see ourselves as a servant. And don't ever show up late for your master, because he is the master, and you are his servant. All right, second, second, the way to God's heart, it requires a posture of humble submission, humble submission, 16a, after he praised God with a loud, praised Jesus with a loud voice, it says, he threw himself at Jesus' feet, he threw himself at Jesus' feet, when was the last time you and I threw yourself at the feet of Jesus? Kneeling is not easy, is it? We don't like to kneel. I think one of the most powerful movies I watched years ago was Lord of the Rings, the last one. Remember when those hobbits, when, when, when they knelt before man? And then what did uh, uh, the main character say? It's Aragon, I forget his name, but he said, oh, you hobbits will kneel to no human. And then all the humans kneeled to them. And I, like, I just started I start getting teary-eyed because there's something powerful about kneeling, about submitting. They submitted to a hobbit. Submission, when you submit yourself to someone, you're acknowledging their authority over you. And if you want to find your way to God's heart, Metro, it doesn't happen unless you're willing to take a knee and submit yourself, fall at the feet of Jesus and acknowledge him as your Lord and Savior. I even think the physical posture of kneeling is so critical for us to remind us again that this is the God whom we serve. This is the master whom we serve. And we are his servant. Falling at the feet of Jesus 
is a beautiful thing. It, it, it signifies reverence. But you know the reason why submitting to Jesus is important and why it's the way to God's heart? Because what happens when you do that is you begin to trust God. And that's the best part of it. Because a lot of you, I mean, you want to try to trust God without submitting. And you can't, you can't have faith in God unless you're willing to submit yourself to him. It doesn't happen that way. And so many of us, we just want God to show us certain things and, and different things. And you want to, like, believe in God. You want to have faith in him. But you don't because you're not willing to submit to him. And you can't do that. Right? I mean, like, when you look at Israel, when they crossed the Red Sea, like you, like, you know what Jewish scholars say? I've said this before. They didn't wait to God part the Red Sea before they started taking a step into the water. No. Do you know that they actually went neck deep into the water before God started parting the Red Sea? See, they had to submit. And they had to trust that God was going to do this, even though they were going into the water and they were neck deep and they were about ready to drown. And you see, if you and I don't submit ourselves to God, you're never going to trust in him. You won't have faith in this God. You certainly won't believe that he has his best intentions for your life. And the reason why many of us are so cynical and we don't believe that perhaps God wants to bless us or, or wants us to experience the best for our life is because you don't submit to him. You don't trust in him. And so as a result, you think that God doesn't want the best for you. And you have to know that he does. And God's ways are not our ways many times. But when we submit to him, you will begin to see that he's worthy of your trust. He truly is worthy of of your trust. I love this scene because as he kneels before Jesus, this leper, what he's doing is this. He's totally changing the way how you worship and how you connect with God. Because for a Jewish person, for them to do that, they'd have to go to a synagogue or to a temple to worship God, right? But what is he doing here? He's saying that I don't need to go to a temple anymore. That I just need to be at the feet of Jesus and kneel before him as my Lord and Savior and submit myself to him. You know, even in a relationship, when you talk to psychologists, a healthy relationship cannot exist apart from submission with one another. And that's why there's, a lot of us, I mean, we don't, the reason why so many of us don't know how to be in healthy relationships is because we never had a good model to look at. There are no models out there for us. We never grew up with parents and saw that how they related to one another and it was a healthy model for us to learn from. And so as a result, we're very dysfunctional in some of that stuff. And so this idea of submission, we, we will never do that in a marriage in a relationship with someone. But you're never going to be able to trust someone if you don't submit to them, right? And so, like, you know, in the past, when I used to, like, date my wife and she used to give me some, like, feedback on myself, I kind of submit to that. She was attacking me with her comments. I saw it as an attack. I didn't see it as, wow, she really loves me so much that she would share this stuff with me. I was like, man, how dare she start criticizing me? I wasn't able to submit because I didn't trust her. She wasn't safe enough for me back then when we were dating. And so if we want to have a healthy relationship, it requires a submission. And it's the same way with God. That if we're not willing to submit ourselves to God, then we're not going to be able to grow and connect and find our way to God's heart because we will never trust him. Trusting is not easy. It's hard. I've been, I've been sort of physically experiencing that in my life these days because I just got my cast taken off about two weeks ago. It'll be two weeks on Monday. And it's amazing when you don't move, like, body parts for five weeks, how you don't know how to move, your, move it again. Like, things just start tightening up. And so I thought when I got my cast off, it just, I mean, a day or two, I would be able to get full mobility back in my hand. As soon as I took off the cast, I had maybe 5% mobility on my hands, especially my pinky and my, my right, my, uh, my ring finger. 
I couldn't bend it. I'm like, what's going on? And I can't, my wrist was sore. I can't, I didn't have full mobility in my wrist. And so the doctor said, you got to go to physical therapy. And I said, I already made an appointment the next day. And so I went in and let me tell you, you don't know pain unless you go get physical therapy after a broken hand. I mean, he started taking my fingers and started like moving it, trying to get more flexibility. And I'm just throbbing. It was more painful than when I actually broke my hand. And I had to go in three times during the week. And I'm in my car and I'm thinking, why am I subjecting myself to so much pain? Why would I do that? It's because I trust in the authority of my physical therapist. And even though it doesn't feel good, I know that if I can continue to go through the therapy, that I'm going to have better range and better motion in my hand. And it's been so amazing. I can almost make a fist. And guys, you don't understand. When you lose your dominant hand for five weeks, it's hard. And now being able to start using it, I'm able to use my chopsticks now. I'm so happy about that, right? Because I, I was trying to use it with my left hand. I can't do chopsticks with my left. I tried. But now that I can use my chopsticks again, I mean, it just makes life so much easier when you eat. And every other, just imagine losing your dominant right hand for five weeks. But there's a sense of submission and a trust that I have to have, even though I know it's going to hurt and be painful. I think for some of you, honestly, because submitting to God is something you haven't fully done. Because no one taught you this part of discipleship, that you got to submit yourself to God regularly. That you got to trust in him and his authority over your life. It can be painful, but I guarantee you as you take that step in submitting yourself to the King of kings and Lord of lords, God will lead you to a path that will only lead your life to a place of greater happiness, a greater fulfillment, a sense of peace in your life. Amen? Submit, humbly submit to your God. The very last thing we see here in how we find our, God, our way to God's heart is that it requires a posture of giving sincere thanks. Sincere thanks. Verse 16. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, we're not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go, your faith has made you well. You can thank God, just thanking him, but there's the difference between thanking God and sincerely thanking him. There really is. Because a sincere thanks oftentimes requires you to go into deeper reflection. You can kind of just say, God, thank you for life. Thank you for, you know, my job. Thank you. And I think that's a good way to start. But sincere thanks is actually just kind of thinking about what do I have to give up to sincerely thank God? Because the leper had to give up stuff. His sincere thanks cost him a lot. You know what it cost him? It cost him his nine friends that he's only known in his life. The only nine people that's ever, that he's ever had community with in his life, he left them. And after they got cleared by the priest, he, God knows where they would go. They probably would all scatter and go somewhere else, but at least they might have actually talked about where they're going to meet and rendezvous maybe at a later time, but this one Samaritan, he gave up that, all those friendships so that he can go and sincerely thank God. That's huge. He prolonged the certification of a priest saying, you're cleansed so that he could reenter into society. I'm sure he wanted to go see his family again. I'm sure he wanted to connect with his mother and father and his siblings. Right? I'm sure that was a longing in their heart. But what did he do? He'd rather have given God sincere thanks. So it does, cost God, it does cost you something to give sincere thanks to our God. 
And you have to be willing to kind of enter into that, into that practice. And the best way to do that is actually through prayer times that I encourage you to start writing it out and start going like through some of the things in your life where you can be truly thankful for. But don't just like do it like read a list. Spend some time asking God, why am I so thankful for this? Why am I so thankful to you, God, for this? And like I've been doing that a lot this week. And I've been so thankful because one of the things I've been thankful for is, is I can wake up in the morning and I can fully believe that I have purpose, that I'm doing what God's called me to do, that there aren't that many people in, in, in the church today that can wake up and say, I know why God placed me on this earth for and live their life with some sense of fulfillment. I know that. And so I was just so thankful, just thanking God that thank you, that in your mercy and in your grace, God, that I know that as I wake up, though ministry is not easy, though there are times where I struggle through it all, right, I wake up with a sense of purpose, never saying, oh, God, this is a drag. I wish I could be doing something else. Never, ever, ever. And I just thank God sincerely for that. Now, you and I have to learn to do those things, thanking God sincerely. Because when you do that, God would show you things about yourself and about him, about how great and gracious he is. If we don't have a healthy dose of sincerely thanking God regularly in our lives, you will continue to swallow the bitter, bitter pills of life. You will continue to be governed by your bitterness, your anger, comparing yourself to other people, wondering why is this happening to this person and not happening to me. You'll get upset about maybe feeling like you haven't been blessed in certain ways. And the reaction of the nine lepers shows how quickly you and I can take God's gracious actions for granted. We do it all the time. And the nine shows us how easy it is for us to do that. A heart of thankfulness is a key way for God to help us to see how gracious, how amazing he really is in our lives, even though maybe we're going through some hard times, that we can truly see the goodness of who God is. When a blessing of life are seen sincerely, when we see that and thank God, and we realize that it's a result of God's grace, it makes us so much gentler and grateful people. If we don't sincerely thank God regularly, we lose the path to his heart. Because then we get angry, we get upset, we get bitter, and we leave ourselves to our emotions. And I don't know about you, but your emotions are very dangerous. Mine are extremely dangerous. And if you lose your path to God, then you lay yourself subject to them. And that's why a lot of us are living in unhealthy relationships. And if we can't be thankful, then we become entitled we think God needs to bless us. Again, that God needs to find his way. God, you better find your way to my heart because I ain't going to find no way to your heart. We become entitled and expect God to do certain things and we get angry and it just destroys our relationship with him. And what I love about this story is that as this leper goes to Jesus and as he sincerely thanks God, what does Jesus do? He gives him more. He gives more of himself to him, right? Because at the end, what does he say? He says, your faith has made you well. You see, the other lepers, the nine, they were healed, but they didn't have faith at the end. And Jesus gave more of himself because he found the way to his heart, and he says, your faith has made you well. He has been restored in his relationship with God, which is the greatest need that every one of us has in this room, that we have a restored or a growing relationship with our God. God will give more of himself to us 
if we find a way of his heart when we can give him sincere thanks. And what I love about this story, though, at the end is that for some of us, I think that we think that perhaps maybe we've lost the way to God's heart because we've sinned so corruptly, so we've done something so bad, way beyond God's forgiveness. And what I love about this story is that this is a Samaritan leper. That's a double negative in the Bible. And Jesus says, your faith has healed you. All that means is simply this. There's nothing you can do to separate yourself from God. The only reason why you feel separated from him is not because God is separating himself from you. You're separating yourself from him. And when you can sincerely give thanks to him, thank him for his love and his mercy and his grace, his mercy will be rich in your life and you'll be able to come back and connect with him in a deep and powerful way. Finding the way to God's heart requires you and I to exuberantly praise him, humbly submit to him, and sincerely thanking him. I got into a big fight with my wife this week, and it wasn't good. And uh, Sunday night was not a good night for us. Somebody had clogged our toilet. I'm not going to say who, but it wasn't me, right? <laughs> it wasn't me. And... Uh, you know, uh, I said, all right, let me, let me try to fix this thing. And so I got a plunger, and I'm trying to fix this clock, and it didn't work. It didn't work. And, you know, Daniel wanted to go out. He, Pastor Daniel was staying with me, so he, he and I wanted to go hang out and stuff into the city. And so I just told my wife, I said, hey, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't do it, so, but we do have a snake. I'll, I'll try to get to it when I get back, okay? So she said, all right. And so we go out, we hang out, and we hang out late. We get back around midnight. You know me. You know I'm not a late-night kind of a person. But, you know, we just fellowshiped. And, you know, when else am I going to get a chance to connect with him like that? So we hung out. We had a good time. I came back. And uh, I thought, and when, we, when I was in the car, I said to myself, well, perhaps, perhaps maybe my wife would have thought, let me give it a shot. Peter has a bad hand. Let me give it a shot. You know, my, she's a lot more handier than I am, all right? And so I just thought perhaps maybe she would have taken some initiative to do it. So I go back, and I'm hoping maybe she did. I keep my fingers crossed. I open the bathroom door, and all I see is a post-it note that says, out of order. So I'm like, okay, well, she didn't do it. So I got the snake, and I don't know if you know what a snake is, but it's like this long, like, thing, and it's got a lever. When you push it down, it goes right into the, into the, into the pipes of your toilet to kind of unclog whatever mess happened. And so this is old, and it's been, it's, uh, it's, it doesn't work that well. It's a little squeaky, but... It does the job. And so I've tried, and I'm, I'm trying to go in deep with the snake. But every time I'm going down, it jams like halfway through. And I'm like, what's going on? Is this thing broken? So I took it out, and I'm like testing it out, but it works fine. So I'm just thinking, I just got to go harder. So I'm going in there, and I'm just go, pumping it harder and harder and harder. And I'm thinking, if I can just go harder, it'll actually break through whatever's clogged. So I'm going harder, and it just keeps jamming and jamming, and my hand is hurting. But I'm kind of like a Neanderthal. I don't care about how much it hurts. I just want to get the job done. That was more important to me than my hand. So I just keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it, and I failed. It didn't work. And so I'm frustrated that it didn't work, and then my hand just really started hurting. When I looked at it, there was like this big indent, like between my, my ring finger and my pinky. And I'm thinking, oh, no, I hope I didn't break my hand again or something. It's just going to be a setback. And I just got so upset and angry. Honestly, I was so angry. And I was like, oh, I wish she would have tried to fix this without me. Like, it would have been great if she took care of it. So I go into the bedroom, and I show her my hand. I'm like, look at this. It hurts so much. And she said, why didn't you stop when it hurt? I didn't appreciate that comment. All right. She said, why don't you just tell Daniel to do it? 
right? He's got a good hand, and I didn't appreciate that either because I want to say, well, how come you didn't do it, right? But I didn't do that because I knew that would be wrong. So I passively aggress- I passive aggressively went to bed, just upset, like, what happened to my hand? I hope I didn't hurt it. Monday rolls around, you know, I get up late, you know, because we had a late night, and uh, kind of went upon my day. My wife already knew I was a little bit upset. I mean, just the, we fixed the toilet. I ended up buying like a $70 professional snake. I went to a hardware store and we got it fixed. But, you know, I thought about the day, you know, and I, and I thought that she was, she kind of caught on that I wasn't very happy and I was a little upset. And so I wanted to kind of share with her kind of like why I was upset because I didn't want that to build up. Because, you know, if you let that build up, it can be like a ticking time bomb. Then one little thing could trigger me off and I didn't want to do that. So I thought, what's the worst thing? I wanted to share with her what I thought and what I felt, right? So in the evening, I said, hey, can I just have a talk with you? I said, I just want you to know that I really felt like I would have loved it if you would have tried to attempt to unclog that toilet because you're a lot of handier than me. You could have done this, you know? And she looked at me and said, what? <laughs> she said, do you know how hard I've been stepping up for you the last six weeks? I haven't complained once. And now you expect me to unclog a toilet? And I said, well, my hand's not well. Like, come on, I appreciate that. And I was just getting very defensive. And she started getting me upset because she wasn't seeing what I was seeing. So it was like, you know, like a deadlock, a stare down. And that's it. We went to bed, not happy. I woke up the next morning, and, you know, for me, I have my routine. I go to God, and I'm trying to sit at his feet, trying to thank God for things in my life. I thank God for my kids. I get to my wife, and I couldn't thank God for my wife at that time. (laughs) I really struggled with it. I really did. And so I went in. I went in. I said, God, I'm mad at her because of this. This little my hand might be broken. Thank God for God. Because he showed me how sinful I am. And the real issue was I don't handle failure very well. And the failure to not fix the clog. And the failure, the worst failure of not stopping because my hand was hurting was even greater. And so for me, in my unhealthiness, I was trying to blame somebody. And I didn't want to blame myself. I needed to blame somebody else. And how ungrateful I was because she stepped up. She does all the cooking, all the cleaning, the dishes, everything. Walks Kobe at night. I don't do any of that stuff because my hand was broken. And how ungrateful I was to her. So I woke up. She woke up in the morning, and I went over to her, and I said, hey, will you forgive me for what I said and what I did? I'm such a jerk. And she said, I will not forgive you. <laughs> she did. She said, I will not forgive you because what you said really, really hurt. I said, okay, so like, uh, can you give me a timeline when you think you might forgive me? <laughs> she said, I will not give you a timeline. You need to wait. I said, I deserve that. Okay. And luckily, evening time came. She forgave me. Thank God. Thank God. I didn't have to wait days upon days. But you know what, Metro, honestly, if I can just be real with you, I don't think I could be happily married today. I don't think I'd even, maybe even be married if I didn't know the way to God's heart. I really don't, because if I leave my own strength and my will to be married to a person and try to love her, I will fail miserably as I did this week. But it's only knowing the way to God's heart that's going to protect you from harming and hurting the people you love the most. And the Reality is, the many of you in this room, the one that you've hurt the most is God because you've lost the way to his heart. And so today, will you get on that path that leads to a heart? Will you praise him? Will you submit to him? 
Will you give thanks to this God so that not only can he bless you in your relationship with him and that you can have true faith, but you could begin to have a blessed relationship with people that you have around you? It's your choice today. It really is. But my hope and prayer is that you will find your way to God's heart. Let's pray.